The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the TakeCast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I am joined by a man I admire greatly, Jonathan Wilson. You probably know him best as author of Inverting the Pyramid. He's actually been on this program before to promote one of his books and he has now written a novel. Uh, You can find the link to purchase that novel in the description of this podcast. It is entitled Stretzlov. It is about uh, a fictional retelling of of one of the the very interesting lives of perhaps the greatest Russian footballer to ever live and uh, his journey to missing the 1958 World Cup. I always love reading Jonathan Wilson's work, love listening to him on the Guardian Football Weekly, and I hope that you guys enjoy his appearance on this show as much as I did. If you want to support this show or get bonus episodes, you can find them on patreon.com slash takecast, or you can just leave a rating or review on iTunes. Now let's go ahead and get into the episode. All right, everyone, welcoming in uh, a return guest, actually, to the program, Mr. Jonathan Wilson. You probably know him best as uh, the, the author of Inverting the Pyramid. I have, uh, I've given that book out as, uh, as a Christmas birthday gift quite a bunch to, to all my soccer watching friends because I, uh, I think it is the, uh, the absolute best soccer. We, that's what we call it here in the States. I know, I know it's, uh, it's football over there, but Jonathan, thank you very much for, uh, for giving us some time. Cheers. Thank you very much for having me. So uh, the reason why I uh, invited you on the show is because you wrote a novel, uh, which uh, I, I, you, you're going to have to do the pronunciation for all of the, the Russian names. I think it's Streltsov. Is that, is that? Streltsov, yeah. Streltsov. There we go. Um, so I, I, I mostly wanted to just ask you this question, which is what gave you the idea to write a novel after publishing, I think, 10 Nonfiction books up until this point? Uh, 11, 11. This 11. is the 12th book. There we go. All right. Um, well, I mean, the truth is, I, I just started it about 10 years ago. Um, I'm not sure exactly when, um, but I had you know some notes in a notebook, and it was really because of lockdown that I suddenly had time. I had that, that 100 day break we had in the Premier League when suddenly there really wasn't very much going on. And I sort of thought to myself, well, I'm trapped in the flat. Um, if I'm not going to write this thing now, I'm never going to write it. Yeah, that was that was an opportunity to uh, pursue, you know, one of my own projects rather than something I was directly being being paid for. Um, but I, I guess then, yeah, the obvious subsidiary question is, 
why did I start writing a novel on this a decade ago, whenever it was. Right. And I, I think um, it's, so, so I mean, people, if people don't know the basic Streltsov story, he was a, uh, a teenage sensation in Russian football and Soviet football. Uh, he made his debut age 16. He was a centre forward. He scored hundreds of goals. He seems to have been sort of a, um, an Erling Haaland figure, just sort of bigger and stronger than that, anybody that's, else. That's the mental image I've got in my head yeah. while reading the book is that basically he's Erling Haaland. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, think, I think a better looking version of Erling Haaland uh, because although he, you know, he lost his hair and sort of became quite a heavy bloke later in life, in his teenage years, everybody talks about how good looking he was with this blonde quiff. And uh, certainly women seem to have found him very attractive. Um, and then uh, on the eve of the 1958 World Cup, uh, when he's, he's 19, uh, he goes to the Soviet training camp, he's in the Soviet squad. And the morning after the, the training camp ends, so they, they've, they've on the final day, they go from Tarasovka, which is where Spartak still trained, just in the outskirts of Moscow. They go from there into the center of Moscow to get their suits for the World Cup. They get measured for the suits. He then has a drink afterwards, decides to go to this dasha just outside Moscow by this reservoir with two teammates. And that night, uh, well, he's arrested the following morning for having raped somebody at the dasha. And he ends up serving six years in the gulag for that. Um, there are all kinds of suggestions that it might have it might have been a setup that he might have been framed by people within the Soviet establishment because I, I think it's true he'd become um, very awkward for the Soviet regime. He, he was very much an individualist. He didn't really, uh, you know, he didn't keep his head down in the way that say Lev Yashin did. Right. Um, and he, you know, he he said some things he probably shouldn't have done. His lifestyle. Yeah, he was drinking a lot. He was going to parties. Uh, he became a bit unreliable. So, you know, the great example of that is uh, the Soviets have a playoff to, to qualify for the World Cup against Poland, which is played in Leipzig in, in what was then East Germany. And he misses the train. He, he gets there late, slightly drunk, and they have to hold up the train and he gets in a taxi and the taxi chases the train. So he, he'd become this sort of unreliable figure. Um, now, I think it's... Well, you know, I, won't, I won't spoil the book, but... I, I, I think there are reasons to, to think the investigation is flawed. Whether that means he's not guilty or not, I, I'd, I'd hesitate to say that. And obviously forensic evidence, which today would give us a much more clear idea. Yeah, we know one more. way or the other, probably. I mean, you always have the issue of consent. Um, sure. So all we know forensically is somebody with the same blood group of him did have sex with Marine Labadeva, the woman who accused him that night. Whether it was him, whether it's consensual, that's much harder to say. Um, but from a, I mean, obviously this, how can I put this without sounding terrible? Obviously it matters hugely from his point of view, from her point of view, uh, whether he did it or not. But from a literary point of view, it's a little bit like, this is what occurred to me. It's, it's a bit like in Passage to India, the incident at the Malabar Caves, when something happens with Dr. Aziz, and we don't ever fully know what's important is something happened. And that sort of absent center is what the whole of Passage to India is based around. Now, I could, I could probably work out exactly when I had this idea, because I, I can remember when I read Passage to India for a second time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, I could work it out, but this is boring. Sure. Podcast, so ten, right. 10 years ago or so ago that uh, I think I, 
well, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, a friend was going to India and, and I gave her the book and I you know, read the book again um, and sort of thought, oh, that's exactly like the Streltsov case. And of, of course, when you have this absent center, when you have this, um, this incident where we don't know the truth of it, and particularly when there's a court case on it, where you know, the whole point of the court case is to determine the truth. And I think what anybody who's written any history on whatever subject finds out pretty quickly is the truth is almost impossible to, find. to ascertain. Um, and you know, something that drives me mad as a, as a football historian is going through players' autobiographies or biographies of players and finding details that are just wrong. Um, and often quite basic things. And, and you realize how the internet has made this a lot easier that books written before 2000, where you didn't just have every fixture ever played, easily checkable. People regularly get goal scorers wrong or they get the order of goals wrong or... Uh, you know, they say, oh, this game was on the last day of the season. Actually, it was a month before the end of the season, which itself is interesting. Why Why is that? That is really happen? interesting because you would why? never think of that reading them, especially well, now. So, I mean, Jack Charlton's autobiography, for instance, which is written in 1996, he he talks when he was manager of, of Middlesbrough, uh, so long before he got the island job. Um, and he talks about a game. See, I'm going to misremember this now. I think it was against Luton. I could have that wrong. No, sorry, it wasn't. It was against Derby. It was against Derby. Uh, when uh, Middlesbrough concede a late goal, so rather than winning 1-0, they draw 1-1. And he says that point cost them qualification for Europe. And he says it happened on the last day of the season, that this last-minute goal. And actually, it happened a month before the end of the season. And even if they'd won that game, they'd still have missed out on goal difference. But I think what's interesting about that is, it obviously, the frustration at conceding that, what for Jack Charlton, who was very much... Yeah, if you're winning 1-0 with 10 minutes to go, don't do anything stupid. Keep the ball in the corner, run down the clock. His irritation that they hadn't done that led that to sort of dominate everything else's mind and he forgets for two games they lose yeah, in the next two weeks. So there's still the interest in that. But um, anyway, my, my, the basic point, that people forget things and people think they remember things. What they're actually remembering is what they've read about it or what they've they've seen a subsequent documentary or, um, or, or you know, they, yeah, they know they were a game, they've seen the TV footage and what they're actually remembering is a TV, TV footage, not what, what they saw. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the whole point of the novel is this idea of truth as unknowable and using this sort of central incident and the court case around that incident to, to sort of explore those ideas and, and yeah, there's a couple of other things in the novel that, that pursue that. So it's the novel's written through the point of view of, of Vanya, who's a functionary at Torpedo Moscow, the club that Streltsov played for. And he's getting old and he starts to forget things and he's very aware he forgets things. But at the same time, everybody's getting drunk all the time. So obviously the alcohol creates another layer. And also there's the point, and this is a very technical point, that this is me, an English person, writing this through the eyes of a Russian person who didn't exist. And so even if we take it at face value, this is the memoir written by this Russian guy, we've gone through the filter of translation anyway. So you have all these layers of, or all these filters stopping you getting at the truth. And instead you have this sort of vague sense of what might or might not have happened. Well, and that's, uh, 
it's a really interesting question in the world of, of football because so much of what, like, you know, I started watching a decade ago, maybe, but I like, if you asked me to like describe Terry Henry or uh, David Beckham or whatever, like I could probably do it, but exclusively through what other people have said about them, you know, like what, you know, what Max Rushton says about these guys. <laughs> Don't believe him, whatever you do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because because I mean, I certainly I am one of those people that gets so much of their their football diet from the Guardian Football Weekly, and so I sort of pick up on these, uh, you know, collective memories of what watching David Beckham for England must have been like, or watching Thierry Henry for Arsenal must have been like, and I get the sense, but but that's even like that's like third layer because it's what other people are remembering about what they watch when they were kids being filtered through, uh, you know, an audio medium, which is it's, I think that's really a uniquely soccer thing because it's so popular throughout the world, even when you would not have watched these, especially, you know, Pele and Maradona. I mean, how many people even watch those guys play like an actual game on TV, a very low number compared to the people who like remember them. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I, I think, I don't think it's unique to football, but I think you're right that, Football is a, is a particularly sort of potent example of this. Um, and, and, you know, this is something that, yeah, the older I get, the more I realize that none of us know anything. Um, and the first time, the first time, maybe not even the first time, but I, I sort of feel that, that increasingly what I'm writing about is that process of not knowing. And uh, I think it was the fourth book I did, The Anatomy of England, what I did for that book was to go back to famous old England games and watch them again. And that was it. Just watch them again. And so there's, there's um, the, the most fascinating one of those for me was there's a game in 1972 when England lose 3-1 at home to West Germany, 3-1 uh, at Wembley in the quarterfinal of the European Championship, which in those days was, was two-legged knockout up until the semifinal. And that game in the sort of English popular mindset is the moment at which English football clearly had fallen behind. You know, win the World Cup in 66, a bit unlucky to lose to West Germany in the, the World Cup quarterfinal in 1970 when they'd been 2-0 up. You know, the, um, Gordon Banks had not played, the great goalkeeper had not played because he was ill. Peter Benetti who replaced him and makes a mistake. Uh, which lets Franz Beckenbauer score to make it 2-1 and then England sort of fall apart because of two bad substitutions from, from Alf Ramsey. But it's 72 when England are outplayed, supposedly, by West Germany. And this is the start of the Dutch-West German hegemony that yeah, Ajax won three. Total football, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The Ajax win the three, champion, uh, three European Cups in a row. Bayern win, win their three European Cups in a row. West Germany win the, 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 the Euros in 72 and the World Cup in 74, beating the Dutch in the, in the final. And so I, I completely get why that narrative has taken hold. But if you watch the game back, West Germany are absolutely brilliant for half an hour. I mean, it, honestly, it could be 4-0, 5-0 after half an hour. England can't live with them. And I suspect no team, maybe the Dutch, but the vast majority of teams wouldn't have been able to live with them. Even Franz Beckenbauer said that West Germany in that first half hour, they hit a level that he'd never seen before or after, that everything just worked. And of course, if you're a journalist at the game and you're writing your report live, it has to be filed on the whistle. Of course, what happens in the first half hour of the game fills more of your report. Is most dominant. Yeah, what, what, what we as journalists want is 
three nil after half an hour, nothing else happens in the game. That makes the piece really easy for us, for us to write. So inevitably, you prioritise what happens in that first half hour. But and England go go one nil down, and it, it, as I say, it could have been a lot more. But they actually do quite well to hold on, and then they start to come back into the game, and they're denied a really obvious penalty uh, just before half time. Um, they they do equalise with about twenty minutes to go, and then because this is the, the first leg, and they know they have to go. I think the second leg was played in Berlin, um, because they know they have to go to Germany. They, they 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 try and get the winner, and by overexposing themselves, get caught on the break, and uh, just get Miller score them both, or maybe he scores one and sets up the other, and West Germany end up winning three one. Which, in terms of the the the, the overall pattern of play, three one a totally reasonable result, right? But actually, the truth is, the last hour of the game, England are probably the be- better side, but they've been absolutely destroyed in the first half hour. But it's that first half hour that dominates the the thinking so you know that that's just you know one example of how our impressions of games and by extension everything else can be misled by the sort of wider narrative or by the time at which it happened or just creating this sort of false false picture which is i i mean it is and that plays that plays a huge part in in the book obviously and i i think that is interesting you know the the idea that i mean we don't really know right the the truth is 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 very unknowable and and memories i mean this is it's almost like pop psychology at this point that now that we know that when you you access a memory what you're actually accessing is like the last time you remembered that right like that that that's sort of what uh, the psychologists know now, which is, uh, I mean, it's very fascinating, especially, you know, talking about this story from Russia in, in 1950 or 1958, where it would have been clouded in secrecy to begin with. I, I will say the story itself is very surprising to me because I would have assumed that the way that the USSR would have treated, uh, you know, all of its amazing athletes would have been to protect them. That that actually, I'm I'm very surprised that maybe their best player at the time. I mean, I can't say I'm a, a scholar. No, I, I think that's fair. I think, I think at 58, you would say he was the best player. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, given what, especially we here in, in the States would have learned about the USSR would have been, these guys could have been monsters. They, they could have been, uh, you know, total criminals and, and the state would have protected them just to get the goals, which, which is sort of alluded to in the book in a way where the, uh, the, the the primary character, the narrator, is talking about how the the head up state people don't understand that you can lose a football game via bad luck sometimes, and so just whatever they would have done, I feel like it, it is surprising as someone from the United States to hear a story of them removing their best player before a World Cup. Yeah, and and I, I think it's it's fair to say that Streltsov was protected for a while, um, in that there were a couple of drunken incidents before the the night of the i mean let's go right. late because he was convicted and and to be honest if you, if you ask me you know, if you really sort of put me on the spot do i think he did it yeah i do okay. would i in a, if i were if i were a juror would i convict perhaps not but that's a slightly different thing that's a different question sure did, is my instinct on the balance of probabilities did he do it yeah i think he probably did um and he was convicted so we can safely and he's dead so he can't sue us uh but so let's say the night of the rape um, there had been two instances where he'd been arrested before that, uh, when it was hushed up. But uh, but, equ- but equally, I think it's reasonable to ask the question: 
why didn't they do more? Why were they happy to let the, the, you know, the courts, uh, let that take its course? Why had they run out of patience with him? Um, and I think that's that, that question and, and the awareness of these things could be um, manipulated is, is why a lot of people think he was framed. Um, yeah. And there had definitely been tension with senior people in the Communist Party, notably uh, Yekaterina Fetseva, who was the culture minister. She was the first woman to be a member of the Politburo. And there was all these stories, and again, who knows what the truth is, that her daughter, who was a couple of years younger than Streltsov, had this sort of fixation on him and, and sort of thought they were going to get married. Is that true? Was it serious? What did Yekaterina Fetseva think? You know, who, who knows about that? I thought the uh, the most interesting character in the book, and again, I am I'm not done with it yet. I'm I'm actually just about to the incident. Uh, his mom, his mom is the most fascinating character in mm. the story to me because she is, uh, you know, clearly very important to him, and and he is the most important thing in the world. And I I feel like the the idea of a single mom again, if you haven't read the book, he, his dad his dad leaves him, and ha basically having to share your son. With the country, I mean, you know, not only not only the club, but uh, but the country. I mean, that is just a, a fascinating human dynamic. Yeah, I mean, her story I think is an amazing story. Uh, so she's called uh, Sophia, and yeah, her her husband, uh, Sveltsov's father, he he's um, he goes to Ukraine during the war, and he's uh, what do you call him? Like a, a scout, uh, um, it's a, it's a sort of semi intelligence officer. Uh, in the war, and he just sets up a, a new family there, and, and Streltsov barely sees him, and he, you know, he, he the father comes back to Moscow uh, with uh, one of his sort of junior officers, and the, the junior officer lets slip that he's got this other family in Kiev, and so Sophia throws him out, and he said, "Oh, fine, like preferred her anyway," um, and he goes off to Kiev, and and, and Streltsov is left to, to grow up. I think significantly without a, without a father figure. I think that's an important uh, factor in, in, in how he develops, that he, you know, the only people he really, the only male role models he has are footballers and it, maybe sportsmen aren't necessarily the best role right. models. If, it, if they're the only role models you have, I think, yeah, a, a more responsible male role model might have helped. Um, but equally, his mother is clearly quite quite a difficult woman. Um, but as, you know, as you say, she's in a very, very difficult position that um, I think certainly you see with Streltsov's first marriage, she ends up becoming very, very jealous of, of Allah. Yeah, the, that's the, a, the, that was wife. a wild story. Yeah, basically yeah. that his, his the, the mother-in-law and the wife just like can't be in the same room and the, the communist party and the club are getting involved. And it's just, it's a very interesting human dynamics. And, and, and the, the, not just they can't be in the same room, which we probably like anyway, but they're literally forced to live in the same apartment. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not that, you know, the um, Streltsov's living with his wife in one apartment and the, the mother's in, in a different apartment. They're in the same apartment. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that just ramps up that tension even further. The, uh, the, the big uh, historical analog I, I thought of was, you know, the, what happened with Ronaldo um, from, from his case in Las Vegas when he was with Juventus and, and certainly. Uh, no, no, no. It, it was, um, it was just between his moves, move from Manchester United to Real Madrid. 
Okay. Uh, well, no. So that's when it happened. But when uh, oh, when the was, story broke in Der Spiegel, yeah, sorry, Der yeah. Spiegel, yeah, he was he was with Juventus, and what they said, I think the the corporate Twitter account for Juventus sent one tweet saying like we stand with Ronaldo or something like that, and I, I mean to be honest, it 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 was very heavily reported on in Der Spiegel, and you guys talked about it on Guardian Football Weekly, but I, certainly I don't think it was like a a huge huge headline. And I thought, again, you know, considering the circumstances, that was, it's a little strange, right? I mean, Ronaldo is one of the 10 most famous people on earth, probably, by some, something close to that. And at the time that it happened, certainly the best footballer on earth, which would make it more analogous to this. And the idea of like Ronaldo serving a prison sentence is for almost anything seems absurd, right? In the, in the climate that we live in today. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a difficult, it's a very difficult thing to talk about legally, and I know your libel laws are different to ours, but um, because he was never formally charged, it's very hard for people in Britain to to talk about it. Um, but yes, clearly something happened, and uh, I mean, clearly that was in my mind when I was writing the Sveltsov story. Right. Uh, I really hope there's no direct parallels, otherwise I might be in legal trouble. There really shouldn't be. But, but yeah, in, in terms of a major sports star accused of a of an act that, you know, when the doors close, it's very, very hard to prove one way or the other, even with modern forensics. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are similarities there. Yeah. Uh, so I, the, the well, before before we got out of here, I did. I just wanted to get your thoughts on some of the stuff going on in world football right now, which is mostly... Um, the the only real title race I've seen since becoming uh you know a, a big a big fan of of specifically the English Premier League is the year that Leicester City won. That was the year that it was is kind of up in the air. And I maybe this is a fault maybe this is a false memory while we're talking on it, but it feels like pretty much every year it's been Liverpool, Manchester City, Chelsea have sort of had it wrapped up every year for yeah. I, I mean know, the, the only one where so. the only one where that's not true is uh not last season not the season before but the season before when city won it when they in liverpool yeah liverpool yes. dropped out seven points in the january i think and that gave city a two-point lead but the problem was they just won every game until the end every of the game. season yeah which i, I mean i know <laughs> yeah again the false memory thing but it genuinely was not like the great title races of um years past maybe not maybe not even my youth but but you look at sort of the early 70s and the way teams would habitually collapse in the last month of the season because they were exhausted. Um, because, you know, they were <laughs> squads of 15 and playing 70 games a season in all competitions and being asked to play, you know, three games a week for the last three weeks of the season. So you got some really strange results. Um, but yeah, it's, it's um, I don't think it's healthy that we're in a situation where 95 points appears to be what you have to get to win the league. Yeah. So it means you have a couple of bad games in December and the kind of a jigs up. You know, there's no, yeah, if you, if you, us. if you lose at Newcastle in, in December, that might be it. That might be enough yeah, to just exactly your rival. Yeah. Which so, is not fun. Like that's like uh, college football here in the United States is basically if the best teams, if they lose one game, that's pretty much it. And it, it makes, it makes the season, uh, less fun for everyone really because even even the fans of the big teams 
then if you lose the one game, then you have no incentive to pay attention or care for the next three months or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, again, we, I guess we always, the, the, ten, the temptation football is also go back to what you knew as a kid when you were first getting into it, because that seemed natural, but and I, I guess it's slightly skewed for me because I, when I was getting into it, um, yeah, we'd only just gone to three points for a win. But it would seem to me healthy that in a 20-team league, around about 80 to 85 points should be what the champions get. That that feels about right. That that, that allow, you know, It means that the top team has to be consistently good, but it also means you can have a couple of slip-ups. You can lose a couple of games, and, and that's not fatal to your chances. So the, the question I think that stems from that is we all hated the Super League, right? We all hate, we hated it for mm-hmm. good reason. It is, it's anti-football, it's anti-community, uh, which again is very different from someone who watches it in the States. Our, our country is ginormous. Uh, we, we have nothing like the equivalent of, you know, Yeovil Town in the Vanarama National League South or whatever can get 5,000 people to come. We have nothing like that here. But I, I do wonder if actually the existence of a Super League where Manchester City, Chelsea, whoever, are, are playing either uh, on two fronts, so they have to play the Super League and the Premier League, or their, their bill, I mean, literally billions of dollars are removed from that ecosystem. I wonder if that actually makes the, the sport, the season, more interesting. Um, I mean, I, I think... The, the, the sort of the, the underlying point there is that the Super League was a symptom, not the cause. Yes. The, 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 the urge for Super League was a symptom of a wildly imbalanced financial yeah. uh, system. Oil and sheets been, owning football teams or whatever. Yeah, we've been lucky in England that we have three teams, maybe four, if Manchester United get their, get their act together. Whereas in Germany, it's Bayern. And Bayern have literally doubled the budget of Borussia Dortmund. Yeah. Or you look at, I mean, Italy's maybe looks a bit different now because Juventus have had that stutter. But fundamentally, if Juventus play sensibly, they win the league. In Spain, Barcelona, Real Madrid, if Barcelona get themselves together again. In France, PSG. And again, you know, saying this when PSG aren't champions feels a bit weird, but. Yeah, it's a nonsense. They didn't win. Well, and and Barcelona's in a bunch of debt because even even Barcelona and Real Madrid, with all their money, still have far less money than Manchester City and Manchester United, right? I mean, Mm. I I think that's right. Yeah, well, it it, it is true. Um, They, I mean, they they also have much more indulgent banks who seem happy to lend them money whenever they need. Right, right. I mean, Goldman Sachs giving you know five hundred million dollar loan to Barcelona. I'm not sure how many businesses 1.3 billion euros in debt would get a loan like that. Would get a loan like that. But yeah. I, I guess as a confidence, Barcelona will never be allowed to, to go bankrupt. Um, and, and I think we've, we've definitely seen with the pandemic that the Premier League has been able to, to sustain itself much better than any other European the TV, major. The TV league, money? Because the TV money is so huge. Um, and it's almost with the fact that the previous TV deal just rolled over um, that they just said, yeah, okay, exactly the same terms as three years ago. We're not even going to negotiate it. Both parties are, yeah, fine. Uh, I think that was a gamble by the TV companies that by putting that money in, they're going to make the Premier League product that much better again. Because, I mean, I think we've seen there's a whole load of players who even three or four years ago, I think would have left by now. So I don't think Sun Young Min will be at Tottenham. 
you know, in, had, in, if we'd been in this situation before years ago, I think he'd moved to Spain, he'd moved to Italy, you know, big clubs, he'd moved to, 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 to Germany, wherever. But there'd been big enough clubs uh, he could go in and, and say, look, Tottenham are struggling. It's, uh, I mean, this is pre-content, obviously. I'm, I'm thinking about it in the summer. Uh, something like, um, would Declan Rice still be at West Ham pre-pandemic? Maybe not. Oh, no, he'd be, he'd be at, I mean, he'd be somewhere, right? West Ham I mean, just would I mean, not have the money. I mean, he he's the best defensive midfielder in the world, maybe. I mean, one of them. I mean, certainly in the Premier League, I think. I mean, Rodri maybe. But yeah, he's, he's definitely up there. But his age and everything. Maybe he wants to stay in England, I don't know. But you sort of feel there'd been movement at other clubs. And I mean, he should have gone to Manchester United. If Manchester United bought Declan Rice, not Ronaldo, I'm sure they'd be in a much better position now. But anyway, it's a, a different issue. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, know, I don't know what you do. It's easy to isolate the problem, but it's very hard to, to, to come up with a solution to it. And you know what I, I think the tragedy of English football at the moment is, is that it's never been so popular. And that's no. true on a global level. It's also true on a local level. In terms of the number of people going to games, and not just in the Premier League, not just in the Championship, but right down, you know, you mentioned the Vanarama. You go down to the t- seventh tier, and you're regularly getting crowds over 500. There have never been this many people going to watch football. Now, I, I hadn't been to um, really low league football for a long time. And then um, back in October, November, uh, I was supposed to be under to watch uh, Sunderland play. And the, the game was called off because of international call-ups. So I went to watch CM Red Star against Ashington, which is, I think that's, seventh tier maybe eighth tier and the standard was incredible it was yeah, so much better they're all than good. It had be- and they're good because they've actually put in proper pitches they've got putting these hybrid pitches so even without you know the, the the sort of equipment and full-time grounds staff that you'd have at a premier league club the pitches are good so you can trust you can pass the ball and trust the ball not to bounce up so the level of football because kids are growing up playing on that kind of surface the level of football is way higher than it was 10 or 15 years ago. So you have these huge crowds, huge numbers of people going to watch the game. The product at a right way down the divisions being higher than it's ever been before. And yet it's still desperately struggling to survive because we've, we've decoupled wages from gate receipts. Because everything is reliant on either external sources of income, such as you have at, at City or Chelsea, yeah. or from merchandising, advertising, TV rights. And once you become dependent on TV rights, uh, then the audience you're serving is not the local audience, it's the global audience. And that's fine, but it does change the dynamic. So, I mean, for, for a local team, for, you know, a seventh, for a seventh tier team or whatever, like there's just not really a solution, right? Especially because now there are, national league teams getting bought by millionaires right yeah uh, South, Salford city bought by millionaires rex rexham built by million like there are there are uh you know guys making fifty thousand dollars a week in the national league mm. right i mean that is that's I, not, but, but, that's not but the interesting thing here um that I, I i don't i don't doubt in any way that gary neville and class 92 have best intentions for Salford. i yeah. don't doubt same at rexham peter crouch taking over dullard hamlet I don't doubt that their intentions are good. Um, but all of them, all three of those, are doing it in conjunction with a documentary series. And so you see football becoming content. 
Yeah. And that immediately creates, creates for me, that creates attention. And I think it's a huge uh, problem that football has and all sport has really that you, you hear the, these, these two things said repeatedly. Nobody ever really interrogates it. Oh, football's a business. We have to take business decisions. Uh, we're, we're in the entertainment game. We have to entertain. You know, it's a sport. The sport has to be the first thing. And that means competitiveness. It means the game being played fairly. It means if somebody elbows somebody in the face for six seconds, you don't think this is going to ruin it for the TV audience if we send him off. You think he's committed a red card offence. And you cannot be allowed to do that, whether it's after six seconds or after 96 minutes. You know, that, that cannot be allowed to happen in the game. And I, I, I just worry that we keep on saying sport is a business or an entertainment. It's not. It's a sport. And the sport has to come first. And people want to watch it because of the sporting contest. Right. You know, when, when football began, or you know, football as we know it began in 1863 with the Foundation Football Association, it never occurred to anybody people want to watch it. They just wanted to, to play football to and have play. a set of laws and to have a, this sort of governing body who'd look after things rather than these constant arguments. And then it turns out people want to watch and so you can generate revenue from it. And that allows you to have professionalism, which is a good thing because it means that you know, people Players from poor background... Well, it means yeah. that people, people, you can play whatever your background. You don't have to be independent yeah, it's, wealthy. It's not a posh sport. To, to devote time to training and then playing. You, you know, a guy who's grown up in, in the mine, playing football is a, is a realistic alternative to, to, to going down the pit. So professionalism is a good thing, but the fact that really from, I mean, in English football from the early 80s onwards, we've taken away a whole series of balances that stopped the big teams getting too big. We, you know, so up to, up to 1981, 25% of all gate receipts went to the away team. So you still have an advantage if you're a bigger team, you have a bigger stadium, you have more fans, but it's not such a big advantage. And then TV rights, TV revenues have massively exaggerated that. And we even had until two years ago in England that overseas broadcast rights were evenly distributed between the 20 Premier League clubs. That you got exactly the same if you were Manchester City, Manchester United, or if you were Watford or Leeds or Norwich. And again, the, the domestic TV rights were structured differently. So you got more of you for how the league you came. But everybody's guaranteed that certain tranche. And now that has begun to be structured so you get more the higher the league you come. And that just creates a self-perpetuating cycle, um, which, is, which is, you know, it's, 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 that is capitalism, I guess. That's what we've seen with the big tech giants as well, that eventually you move to a monopoly situation. But it's, it's, I mean, it's not as if North City is poor, right? Relatively speaking, in the, in the world of football, what, I mean, the, the, 15th highest spending team in the Premier League could finish like fourth in in Spain, right? Or or in Italy with how much money they spend? Or is that uh, is that not correct? I mean, it's it's they they certainly be top half, yeah. And well, and also English players cost a lot more because of the registration rules, so that there's like a little bit of inflation there. Um, I, I, and that yeah. will happen increasingly because of Brexit, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Declan Rice, uh, look, looking forward to him getting sold for $150 million to somebody. Well, I actually, just, Declan Rice may qualify as Irish. And uh, I, I don't know. Rules. That. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, well, yeah. He, so he may be open to a move to a continent. I don't know. I mean, he clearly does also qualifies as English, but he might have dual. I don't know. Because he has played for Ireland. So yeah. I would, I would assume uh, he, he counts as a EU citizen. 
So you mentioned, you mentioned uh, the football as content and, and your team Sunderland, uh, they, they were kind of the first big football doc. I mean, obviously there had been hundreds of, of football documentaries done before, but the Sunderland one, I, I feel like Sunderland till I die started the, the, the movement of every football team wanting to do a documentary. Cause like I, even friends of mine who don't care about football at all, watch Sunderland till I die because it, you know, it was on the front page of Netflix and everything. So I, what was your, what were your thoughts on its impact on the club? Um, I don't know what impact it had on the club. I mean, anecdotally, I heard stories from people who work in the club shop saying, oh, we're getting orders from, you know, the US, from India, from Nigeria, sure. from uh, whether that's actually statistically significant or not, I, I don't know. Um, but I mean, yeah, the, the lads who did it, two of them were three years below me at school, four years below me at school. I'm not, I'm not going to claim they're great mates, but I do know them a little bit. Uh, and, that, you know, their, their love of something is absolutely genuine the club and the city. And, and that I actually found the whole thing incredibly moving because, you know, Sunderland is a, in some ways a, um, a struggling post-industrial city. Yeah. And it's, it's not somewhere that's often portrayed in a loving light. And just the way everything was shot, I, I thought uh, they, they did give you an idea of, of Sunderland is, is actually quite a, yeah, quite a nice place, quite a desirable place. So it's, those tracking shots along the cliffs, which are exactly where I, mean, I grew up on those cliffs. Um, yeah, I, I found very powerful. And the people that they they use, the, the, the interviews they had, yeah, the taxi driver, the woman who worked in the kitchens. Yeah, the, yeah. anybody who's from Sunderland knows people like that. And I thought that that expressed very well what a, what a football club means in a post-industrial provincial English city. Um, the football access... Uh, yeah, it was fine. It was it was mildly interesting, well, but well, it, it was, it was. I mean, you you know all that stuff though. You're yeah, that's true. You're, you've mean, been in and around the game for your whole yeah, I mean, that's true. Not I, your I, whole life, but I mean, I'm coming from a privileged position. That is true, uh, but, but even then, I mean, uh, yeah, Martin Bain, the the um, the the, uh, the, the su- chairperson, he did not he did not cover himself in glory. In it, it, well, it, until in I that died. first series, and he was a bloke who commissioned it. He was a bloke who said, "Yeah, go ahead, do it," and. <laughs> what did he think he was doing? I mean, he allowed a camera to be on him at all times. D- you know, during a game, there's a camera constantly pointing at him to get his reaction. And then, you know, Charlie Methven, uh, who, who became CEO, um, I, actually, was he technically CEO? Whatever his role was. Uh, and he comes across as... <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think he came out well. But that's you know, you know who came off the worst in the whole thing? Jack Rodwell. Yeah, yeah. Jack I, I remember. I remember that. I of what I probably watched it four years ago, five years ago, and I still remember Jack Rodwell, just an asshole, just does not come off good at all in in uh, Sunderland until I die. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think he's pretty unhappy with with that portrayal. Um, but yeah, there's an extraordinary shot in the massage room, isn't there? When uh, I think it's George Honeyman, uh, he's, he's off screen. He was the captain at the time, and I think I think Rodwell had done an interview in the Daily Mail, where he said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm nearly fit, I'm ready. And Chris Coleman had been asked, you know, is, is Jack Rodwell ready? And he'd sort of given this very non-committal answer of, well, if he's fit, of course he's in our plans. And then you get George Honeyman off screen in this massage room saying, Jack, is this true? Are you ready? And Rodwell went, no, of course not. And, and yeah, uh, I mean, you assume the editing is fair, but um, yeah, yeah but he, you're right. You he, he didn't come out of it well. 
Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think uh, there we go. I got I got uh, a couple extra minutes out of you because I got you to talk about Sunderland. So, uh, John, thank you very much for for coming on the program. I I always appreciate it. Huge. I mean, I've read all your books. Huge fan of uh, Guardian Football Weekly. So I really appreciate the time. No worries. Anytime. All right, everyone, uh, the link to purchase the book, if you want it, will be in uh, the show notes, the description to the show. I encourage you all to read it. It's, uh, it's a very affordable six pounds. That's about, I think that's about eight fifty here over in, uh, in the United States. And I encourage you all to read it. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.